Okay, I told you that two sets of people were going to pray today, right? The set that said, we're going to pray that we stay another week in this passage. And then the other folks that were going to pray, we moved on. Uh, by a show of hands, um, how many of you prayed that we would move on? Wow. Okay, so how many of you prayed that we would stay? Okay, how many of you prayed? <laughs> Come on! I mean, that's my job, right? I get to do that. All right, so who were the hands that prayed that we would stay? Okay, I need to talk to you and see you later. You need to be praying for me all the time. That's what we're doing. We are staying another week in this passage. So, here's what we're going to do. You have in your your bulletin, you might want to keep that open because that's the way we're going to read the text. Okay? Now, I told you about David Sheff. He's chronicling his journey as a father through his son's addiction to meth. Right? It's called A Beautiful Boy. Acclaimed book. Uh, His 19-year-old son is in... Uh, rehab again. Now, a lot has happened for him to be in rehab again. A lot of just the descriptions of this father describing what he goes through, his family goes through, what his son goes through. The realities of that addiction is, it's painful. That's the best way to say it. I read it and I go, I don't know if I can read another page. And by faith, I hit my finger on the end of the Kindle and it goes again. Um, So when you say he's in rehab again, a lot's happened, okay? Now, he and his father are having an honest conversation, a very brutal conversation, where they're talking about his chances of really actually recovering. Now, they're able to have this conversation months into his rehab because he has gone through that brutal, what do they call it, withdrawal phase. Now, evidently, for a meth user, it's over-the-top extraordinary. It's not like heroin. It's not like Coke. It's not even like some of the stronger, more potent drugs out there. Evidently, meth messes with your brain and with your body so severely that the withdrawals are unbelievably painful and can be psychotic, all right? So he's having a semi-lucid conversation right now with his dad, and he says, Nick says, I don't think this is going to work out for me any better than the last time. All the talk about God, Dad, I can't get past it. His dad says, look, they're saying higher power, not God. There's a difference, Nick. Nick, not buying it, says, higher power, Dad, is another way of saying God. You have to believe, and I don't. You can't get over this unless you believe, they're saying. I have no problem with the first of the 12 steps. It's obvious I'm powerless. It's obvious I can't manage my life. I am powerless over drugs. My life has become unimaginable. But after that, it's all bull beep, Dad. And then the father narrates to the reader, not to Nick. And he says, "Uh, this, um, his atheism, is a gift from his parents. It's a gift from me. Um, Sometimes we put ourselves in the darkest places. Shortly after this latest round of rehab, Nick vanishes. But when he vanishes, he has an eight-year-old brother, and his eight-year-old brother worships him, thinks he's the greatest thing since Superman, and even better than that. But on his way out, he cracks open his brother's eight-year-old brother's piggy bank and takes steals eight dollars to feed his habit. 
And his father says, how do you explain to an eight-year-old when his beloved big brother steals from him? He's being swallowed by pain now, the father is, and he says, my son is gone. When I'm alone, I weep in a way I have not wept since I was a young boy. Tears come at unexpected moments. They pour forth with ferocity. They scare the hell out of me. It scares the hell out of me to be so lost and helpless and out of control and afraid. So what does this atheistic father do next? He prays. And he says, oh God, help my son. Sometimes we not only put ourselves in the darkest places, sometimes we find ourselves in the darkest places. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Exodus chapters 3 and 4. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this will be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God said, also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it to the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses fled from it. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O my Lord, please send someone else. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he led him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. 
And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Did y'all notice that all that interaction that Moses had, all his doubts, all his everything about what are they going to do, how are they going to respond when they finally do it, it said they believed. It was uneventful. So I guess that's the sermon. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your spirit. And we thank you that it's not by might, it's not by the strength of the horse or the strength of the the warrior's legs. It is by your spirit alone, says the Lord. So, Jesus, you've unleashed your spirit on your church. We ask now for a special anointing. We ask for a filling so that we would see the wonders of this text. And we would not only see it, Lord, that you would you bring it home to the heart. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, look at verse 1. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro. Again, cool name, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Direction in the Bible is a big deal. If the Bible takes time to put on ink directions that people are traveling, pay attention. If they're traveling east, that's generally a very, very good thing. If you're traveling east, that means you're moving, or it symbolizes you're moving towards Eden. You're moving towards paradise. You're moving towards blessing. You're moving towards the way things were meant to be. You're moving towards God. So if you're moving west, it symbolizes the exact opposite. It's never a good thing. You're moving away from paradise. You're moving away from home. You're moving away from blessing. You're moving away from God. Now, if you move west of the wilderness, it's a double whammy. You are now at the farthest possible point from God. In verse 1, Moses is as far from God, as far from blessing, as far from Eden, as far from home as any person could be. Now, don't miss this. I missed it the first time around. Shaner pointed it out to me. Look where Mount Horab is, which is Mount Sinai. Look where the mountain of God is. Do you see that? I mean, look where God intentionally places himself. God intentionally places himself at the farthest possible point from paradise. All the implications of this are absolutely astounding. The implications, the applications. In other words, here's the point. Is this you this morning? Is this you? Do you think you are? Do you feel like you are? Do you actually believe that you are at the farthest possible point from God this morning? Do you feel like you're at the farthest possible point from blessing, from happiness? from laughter and smiles and friendship and warmth. 
intimacy and help, strength and courage. Are you in a dark place? Are you in a painful place? Are you lost? Are you alone? If this is you, here's the driving point in verse 1 for you. God is there too. God plants his presence in the farthest possible point from paradise. So what does this mean? I mean, how should this impact you? How should it impact me? What should this do to us? You know what it should do to us? We should be looking for a burning bush. When you're in these dark places, look for the burning bush. Expect God to show up. I mean, if Moses knew his biblical directions, if Moses knew what was really happening in verse 1, if Moses realized the Western movement that he was involved in, that he was in the west of the west of the wilderness, if he knew this, he would have been looking for the burning bush. He wouldn't have been surprised by it. He'd have been looking for it. He had been waiting for God to show up. He would have saying, okay, this is the kind of places that God loves to be. This is the kind of places God intentionally shows up at. Uh, There would have been a flicker in Moses. It might have been a pilot light, but there would have been a flicker in Moses of love and hope and warmth and energy that, yeah, God is here. There would have been enough of a flicker in his life that he would have cried out to God and he would have called out to God. In other words, he would have grabbed his Bible and hunted and searched for God. Expecting him to show up. He would have grabbed a friend or friends and he would have said, man, this is what's going on in my life. And he would have allowed his friends to help carry the load He would have gone to church and he would have been in church praying his pain and praying his isolation and praying the severity of his wrecked relationships and praying his emotional distress and praying his situation and his circumstantial terror. He would have been praying whatever was going on in his life that led to a dark place and he would have prayed it. He wouldn't have stuffed it. He would have prayed it. And then he would wait looking for a burning bush because God plants his presence in the farthest possible points from paradise. But let's be honest. I mean, can we have an honest conversation? I like to have them. When you're at the furthest possible point from God, when you travel west and when I travel west, we're not looking for a burning bush, are we? (laughs) We're not We're not expecting God to show up. So this is what we do. We fend for ourselves. Uh, We deal with the pain and the darkness in these dark times on our own. We deal with the tough situation on our own. We deal with the sin and the trouble and the distress in our life on our own. We deal with the fear and the shame and the guilt in our life on our own. We deal with the confusion and the struggle to see and the inability to find your compass on our own. And then the next most important thing we do is we try to perform our way out of it. 
Uh, Barbara Dugid just wrote a book that's buzzing the blogs called Extravagant Grace. I rarely do this, but I am doing a favor for you. If you want to read the best book you're going to read this year, it's called Extravagant Grace. It is based on John Newton. Do you know who John Newton is? Former slave trader, author of Amazing Grace, uh, a pastor of pastors, skilled in the anatomy of the soul. Who was his pastor? Anybody know? A guy named William Cooper. Have you ever heard that name? We sing many of his hymns. That man struggled with depression his whole life, and his pastor was Newton. Newton put him back together again day after day and month after month and year after year. And Newton, this is the crazy thing, didn't despise the knock of him on his door. I I don't know about you, but, you know, two weeks, three weeks, a month, six months, a year as a pastor, talking to the same person about the same stuff. I mean, I'd have this do not disturb sign on my door. And he always welcomed him. Anyhow, uh, this book is based on his writings of the Christian life, and it will shock the daylights out of you of how he defines Christian maturity. It'll revolutionize the way you see it. It should. So anyhow, she in it, she talks about their fourth child, Robbie. She says, Robbie was a sensitive toddler. He craved the approval of his parents. And she said, quote, this was great because it meant I rarely had to discipline him. So here's just a little side note. You have a child that just never gets disciplined and seems so obedient. Take note. <laughs> the child craves your approval and your acceptance. And the child that, that seems disobedient and rebellious They just don't need it. But you think your obedient child is the holy one, don't you? Interesting, isn't it? Fascinating, but that's just for free. Let's keep going. She said at one time, though, she did have to spank him. And she said, quote, since I was habitually overwhelmed by the needs and naughtiness of four other young children, I sent him to his room to sit on his bed until I could talk to him. Before long, I heard a pathetic little voice calling out in despair, I'll behave now. Mommy, I'll behave now. That break your heart? This little man desperately wanted to be restored to the smiles of approval that he so enjoyed, and his solution was to promise to obey if he could just get let out of his jail cell. Do you catch that? When you're in a dark place, you know how you and I try to get out? If it's to God, maybe, or to yourself, or to someone else, I'll behave now. I'll try harder. I'll do better. Is that going to get me out? Right? We think external obedience is going to bring the smiles back. But here's the bottom line. We don't have the spiritual resources to handle the dark places. When you and I go west and you're on the west side of the wilderness, you don't have the spiritual resources to handle it. So you break down. And you break down your relationships. And we live in denial. So we minimize it. We suppress it. We spin it. We stuff it. We pretend it doesn't exist. 
Or even worse, we create coping mechanisms that are utterly destructive. We go to addictions. We get in these bad behavioral patterns. And we generate, because of all the pressure, these psychological ticks. You know what a psychological tick is? If you don't, you haven't been in the wilderness. When you go to the wilderness, you'll know what your psychological tick is. Come talk to me. One of the most profound insights the atheist father, David Sheff, has in his book, you know what it is? It's not about his son, Nick. Now, he says incredible insights about his son. I sat there going, how can this, how can someone who doesn't believe in God be able to diagnose a soul like that? How can they? It's amazing. But it's not his son, Nick. It's not even the meth industry in the United States. I never now will look at Sudafed again the same way. I willingly will give them my my driver's license before I ask for Sudafed. I know the industry now, more than I ever wanted to know the industry. And not only that, I now know the misery of meth use. I now know how unique its abuse is to the brain and the body among all other drugs. It messes with your brain and your body. It makes you psychotic. The shaping influences that read the drug use, it's phenomenal in there. He tries to show how every category, doesn't matter you're rich, you're poor, well-to-do, good families, broken families, the shaping influences involved in people that eventually get into drug use is phenomenal, and it's not what you think. The other thing that's incredible is the impact a divorce has on a child. He says that's the number one shaping influence for his son. But then he says there are many families that never get divorced, and they have daughters that take meth and sons that take meth. He's quick to point that out. He's quick to point out that meth is an equal opportunity abuser, religious, irreligious, rich, poor, black, white, females, males, doesn't matter. And he talks about the savagery of the wounds. He says all families that have meth users are savagely beat up and wounded, gaping holes all over them. But that's not the most profound insight. You know what the most profound insight, the most powerful insight, it's worth the book or your Kindle, whatever you use. It was about himself. Do you know what he said? He says, my son's addicted to meth and I'm addicted to my son's addiction. Wow. In other words... You and I do not have the spiritual resources to live on the west side of the wilderness. And what eventually happens is those dark places will now control you. They will now oppress you. You will become addicted to your dark place. So what's the good news here? Good night. Can we have some, please? Now we have Moses' famous encounter with God, right? Famous encounter. And this famous encounter reveals the most powerful spiritual resource there is for you and me. In Moses' interaction with God, and there's five responses of, of Moses interacting with God. In this interaction, it reveals the most potent, the greatest, the most life-giving, powerful spiritual resource for you and me. Are you ready? Here we go. First response is in verse 11. Who am I for, I, who am I for this task? I mean, what's Moses saying? He's saying, listen, God, you know who I am. You know what I'm like. You know, you know I've done the deliverer thing already. How did that go? You know I'm unfit. 
I mean, come on, you know you told me to take my shoes off. You know I'm unholy. Second one, verse 13. What is your name, God? I mean, who are you? What are you like? I mean, are you like the gods of Egypt? Are you like the gods in the wilderness? Are you like the gods in darkness? I mean, are you a God that cares? Are you a God that sees? Are you a God that hears? Are you a God that would go for someone like me? Third one, four, one. Why would they believe me or listen to me if I tell them? Isn't that a good one? You know what's going to happen. He's going to say, listen, I'm going to go and I'm going to say all this stuff and they're going to say, prove it. And I'm going to go, right? And that's when God says, hey, what's in your hand? A staff. Remember what a staff is? Staff's wood. Remember what wood symbolizes? The tree of life, right? But we'll, we'll look at that more later. But he ends up showing him a sign from the wood of life, the staff that turns into a serpent, right? And then he puts his hand in his pocket and it becomes leprosy. So signs are given, all right? Now, the fourth one's in verse 10 of of chapter 4. And what does he say there? He says, oh, God, I'm not a good communicator. I can't speak. Now, here's the most fascinating thing about that. This is unbelievable. We know he can speak. Stephen when he's being stoned before the religious leaders, he rehearses redemptive history and he talks about Moses and he says Moses was a great hand-to-hand combat fighter. He was great in action, which means a great warrior. And he was great in speech. And that's a specialty of the Egyptians. So now we have Moses at the point of his life where he is saying he's lost all confidence Do you see this? It's gone. Even the good kind. I mean, what's the good kind? Well, the good kind is, listen, he has gifts and talents and abilities that God has given him. So do you. But they became too important to him. You know what it means when it becomes too important? It now becomes your identity. So you only can fluctuate when your gifts and your talents and your abilities and your performance are your identity. You fluctuate. Just like we see him in Egypt, he's superior I am a warrior. I'll take that dude out in two seconds. And he did. And I can speak and motivate and command a nation and an oppressive nation to let these people go. Superiority. But now in Midian, he's inferior. He waxes and wanes on how his gifts and his talents and his abilities and his false identities are doing. You see that? I mean, what would it be like to like, you know, you have a gift in your talent. What would it be like to just say, you know, I am a gifted mathematician. And your gifts and your talents could be just that, gifts and the talents. You're successful in something, and it's just success. It's not your identity. And you could just honestly say, you know, my, you know, we do this to our kids all the time, right? Oh, my kid, who? Yeah. What about yourself and what about your spouse to be able to say it without feeling superior or feeling inferior and comparing yourself? It's just, man, I got some really cool things that I love to do. 
All right, finally, the fifth one is in Exodus 4.13, and this is where he says, Oh, Lord, send someone else. I can't do it. (laughs) All right, so here we go. We got five responses of Moses. So what's the spiritual resource here? It's seen in all five responses. Do you see it? Here's the resource. Moses came to a place of what? Weakness. The greatest spiritual resource that you and I have is weakness. The greatest source of power that you and I have, weakness. Look how patient and loving God is with Moses and his weakness. Do you see that? See how persuasive he is? You see how long he takes to comfort him and assure him and persuade him and help him and strengthen him and warm him and energize him? Do you see how God's not put off by his weakness? God's relishing his weakness. God's moving in his weakness. And here's the big one. Do you see how long God talks to Moses? I mean, two full chapters. I mean, who wouldn't want God? Who, you would love to have God talk to you this long. How does God talk to someone this long? Because God loves to talk to weak people. I mean, grace always moves downhill. Grace never moves uphill. If Peter was here, he'd say, listen, God opposes the proud uphill, but he gives grace downhill to the humble. God loves to talk to weak people. He loves to talk to humble people. He loves to talk to needy people. He loves it. But you say, wait a minute. God eventually gets ticked off at Moses in verse 14, and you're exactly right. (laughs) He does. But he's not getting ticked off at Moses for admitting his weakness. What is he getting ticked off at Moses for? For his disobedience. Send someone else. I can't do it. So, I mean, here's a a side point, and it's important because sin does kindle God's anger. If we reject God's word and we reject his deliverance and then replace God's word with our word and replace God's deliverance with our deliverance, it kindles God's anger because sin is a big deal. Sin has to be taken care of. It can't be overlooked. And God's anger is towards sin is a big deal. The Bible says it has to be satisfied or the theological word is propitiated. But we got more on that later, but that's not the main point. Moses' disobedience and God's anger towards his disobedience is not the driving point. The driving point is that here's the greatest spiritual resource that you and I have in dark places. Weakness. God plants his presence in weakness. Mount Horeb. Mount Sinai is in weakness. Here's the application. It's just one application, but it will change your life. The application is this. Rethink your view of the Christian life. Rethink it. Not just rethink it, revolutionize it. Not just rethink it, turn it upside down and inside out. Um, And I'm going to use... Barbara Duguid's quote, based on John Owen, 
to show us how. She says, let's be honest. If the chief work of the Holy Spirit, if the chief work of the Holy Spirit in sanctification, you everybody know what that means? Growing in Christian life, growing in holiness, growing in spiritual maturity. If the chief work of the Holy Spirit in sanctification is to make Christians more sin-free, then he isn't doing a very good job. The church throughout the ages and throughout the world has not usually been known for its purity and goodness. Instead, it's wracked by a constant history of strife, violence, and hypocrisy. People often cannot differentiate a believer from an unbeliever by their apparent goodness. In fact, there are many unbelievers who are morally superior to Christians and live lives of far greater nobility, generosity, and purpose than those who profess faith in Christ. Conclusion, what if the chief work of the Holy Spirit was something different? What if the chief work of the Holy Spirit in sanctification was to make you more humble and dependent on Jesus? More grateful for his sacrifice and more adoring of him as a wonderful Savior, then the Holy Spirit might be doing a very, very good job even though you sin every single day. End quote. Rethink your view of the Christian life. Maturity is not more external obedience. Maturity is not more sinlessness in your life. Maturity is not the victorious Christian life. Maturity is weakness. Maturity is a deepening dependence on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Maturity is growing in grace. This is why God takes us to the west side of the wilderness. You know why? Because we have to learn weakness. And he has to take us to learn weakness because when we're able to learn weakness, now we're ready to learn grace. And that's spiritual maturity. Now, we got to end this thing, right? And it's really kind of bizarre that way this, this story ends. I mean, on all accounts, God going out to hunt Moses down and kill him is as bizarre as it gets, doesn't it? I mean, did you scratch your head when you got there? I'm like, okay, we just went through this whole wilderness thing. We just went through this whole encounter with God. We just got the deliverer ready to go. You now commission him. You now send him out to go to the Egyptians. And now along the way, you're going to kill him. Is that not bizarre? It's incredibly bizarre. And in fact, when you look at the people that try to explain that text, it gets more bizarre. And I haven't read one that I agree with yet. And I've read tons. I've read my best folks. I went to them, how they read it. Everybody, the majority of people are going to say this. It has something to do with the seriousness of circumcision, which I agree with. Right? That fits some of the pieces in the text. I mean, what's circumcision? It's a sign and seal of the covenant with Abraham, which means a sign and seal of a covenant of grace, which means you are forgiven and freed. So if you don't have the sign and seal, you're not forgiven or freed. So you are outside grace. You're now inside justice. So Moses did not circumcise his own son. So he's outside and his son's outside, but he's responsible for his son. So he's getting the one that's going after Okay, that fits some of the pieces in the text, but that doesn't fit all the pieces in the text. So what is it? 
Why is this here? Why is this bizarre thing here? It's kind of like, have you ever read Isaac and Abraham? When God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, you just kind of go, that also gives you kind of one of these bizarre moments. Like, ah, how does this work? But what's fascinating, just like here, if you keep reading your Bible, there's greater and greater clarity. What's happening here is that God is foreshadowing in an incredible way. In other words, he's saying Moses the deliverer is spared. He's spared so he can deliver the Israelites from the Egyptians. But the true deliverer, the great deliverer, will not be despaired. And not only will he not be spared, he will be killed by God himself. Sin doesn't kill the great deliverer. Death doesn't kill the great deliverer. Satan's not even in the arena, so we don't even we need to talk about him. Some Satan to exchange whatever that theory is is ridiculous. Now God kills the great deliverer because in order for the great deliverance to happen from the tyrannical oppression and bondage and wreckedness and wretchedness of sin and judgment and the fear of it, it requires death. It requires blood. And so the wonder of all wonders is this. God looks at you, and he looks at his great deliverer, and he chooses you and kills his deliverer. Friends, um, if you get that, your weakness is strength. Your weakness is power. Your weakness is freedom. Your weakness is identity. Your weakness is life. So yeah, we have to go to the west side of the wilderness. And the reason why we do is because God's got to teach us to be weak. But on the west side of the wilderness, he gives you grace. He gives you a great deliverer whom God said, I choose you over him. And the deliverer himself said, I choose you over me. I willingly go.